Good morning, everyone. And thanks again, worship team, for helping us to um, honor, exalt, praise, uh, give God the glory that um, his word tells us he deserves. Um, my name is Tim. It's my privilege to share with you from God's word this morning. If you have your Bible, uh, you'll want to find um, your way to Exodus chapter 33 and chapter 34, where we're going to be spending most of our time this morning. I'm going to read a couple of verses, uh, Exodus 33, verse 18, and then we'll jump into chapter 34. Moses said, speaking to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This morning as we uh, continue in our series entitled Awe and we continue to look at Moses' request of God to show him his glory and how God responds to that as we do that today and we continue to do that over the next number of weeks, we see how Moses in, in, in this encounter experienced the, the splendor and the glory of God. And today and, and the weeks ahead and maybe even the weeks behind, it will cause us to reflect on how we see God's glory and how awesome is He to us. In our minds, how high do we esteem Him? And not just in our thinking, how does that filter down into the way we live, uh, the things that we do. Is God awesome in the way that I spend my time? Is God awesome in the way that I spend my money? Is God awesome in the way that I make my decisions? How does his awesomeness figure into all of my life? And what value, what level do I place his glory in the pursuit of what I'm all about? This morning I'm going to share with you a personal story, and I've shared this with some of our team leaders a few years ago, but I've never shared it publicly, and um, I may get emotional at some point. It's something that happened to me about 30 years ago and has marked me. I was pastoring a small church at the time and had set aside time in my schedule to spend time, go to seek the Lord, and so I had 
Um, I had the privilege of using a friend's cabin on an island. It meant I had to take a ferry and then a water taxi to get there. The plan was I would be there from Monday to Friday, so I'd go up Monday, come back Friday afternoon. Um, you know, it's a lot easier if you don't have meal plans to worry about, uh, you know, trek food up. And so I would go without eating, had no electronic devices, no phone, no TV, uh, just my Bible, some things to write on, a couple of books. That was it. It was going to be just me and God, a beautiful setting, lots of beautiful trails right on the ocean. Um, and it was, it was really sweet. It was really special. As we got to Friday, and, uh, you know, I'm... I was weak, and uh, I was hungry. Those of you that know me, I'm a bit of a foodie. If I haven't been fed, I start to get a little bit grumbly, you know, that's, uh, it's, you know, the way that it is. And so, you know, on my schedule, I'm going to go home Friday afternoon. Um, I packed everything up, and at Friday noon, not lunchtime, but Friday noon, uh, everything's packed. I'm right on schedule. And the water taxis, uh, I can't remember exactly if it was, they ran every one hour or every two hours. Um, but, it, you know, you, if you missed one, you had to wait quite a while for the next one. And so I'm all ready to go. I'm starting to think about going home, being with my wife, uh, being with my kids. And, uh, oh, I can't wait to see them. This has been a rich time. Thank you, Lord. Ah, oh, this is, yeah, let's, oh, I can't wait to get home and maybe eat something tonight, too. And, and then it happened. I can see the water taxi coming up from the other side. And, uh, you know, it's about 10 minutes away, 15 minutes away. And I'm all ready to go. I'm about, you know, just 100 yards down to the dock. I can bring my stuff. And I hear this very, very clear. You know, when God speaks... To your heart, and the words were, it hasn't cost you anything yet. And I thought, what do you mean? I've been like all the trouble to get up here, you know, I've gone without food, no Canucks games, what do you mean it hasn't cost me anything? So on, on, for a little while I went on this internal dialogue, pushback on my part, which I knew was useless. I knew that God was saying to me, Tim, not on your schedule, but on mine. I want you to seek me just a little bit more. So I said yes, and I watched the ferry come, the water taxi come, I watched it go. I sat down, I opened my Bible. And all I can tell you, not in the same way Moses got a glimpse of God's glory, but on that day I got a glimpse of God's glory. The word glory in the New Testament, we, is, uh, the, the, the primary word is doxa, and it means to have an estimation of something or to value something, and, you know, different things can have different estimations in your mind or heart, and so even physical things, like Paul talks about there's the glory of the moon, there's the glory of the sun, so it's a value or estimation that you might place on something or worth that you place on something. In the Old Testament, the word uh, is spelled K-A-B-A-D, but it's pronounced kavod. And it, it, it confers this idea of weightiness. And so it's like if you had a scale and you took 
you, you evaluated someone's uh, character, nature, and things they can do, and you just sort of add it up, and it's like you could put it on a scale, and you know, what they're capable of, what they have accomplished, things that they've done, and what they're about, their personality, and you get a certain weight. And the Old Testament in particular describes the weightiness of God, and it uses this word, kavod, that there is nothing that compares. In Isaiah 40, God says, like, who, who's like me? Like, who are you going to compare me to? When it comes to the heaviness, when it comes to the glory of God, there is nothing that comes even close. So on that encounter uh, that I had with God, I didn't see a pillar of cloud. There was no burning bush. There was no, with my physical eyes, a manifestation. There was just this overwhelming sense of God's presence in the room. And then came words. As I had my Bible open, uh, this was unplanned. It was unscheduled. hadn't been on my mind but I started to get verses and thoughts and concepts and understandings and connections from one scripture to another. And the theme that God chose that day was the glory of God. The glory of God. When Moses gives this request to God, show me your glory, God gives him words. God gives him words. He proclaims his goodness through his name. Moses, you want to see my glory? Well, let me explain it to you through the glory that's revealed in who I am in my name. And it begins with mercy. It begins with mercy. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. When God, in the clearest way possible, begins to tell his people what he's about, like these are God's words. This isn't through a prophet, although those are God's words speaking through prophets. This is like God himself speaking to Moses in the clearest words. If you want to know what I'm about and how I relate to you, and that, in that way, how he relates to us, who he is to us, this is it. And, and this becomes like a, a foundation to the whole life of Israel for generations to come. You can read what, what God says to Moses here in Exodus 34. You can read it in the Psalms over and over again. You can hear it ringing in the words of the prophets. Like this is pivotal. God says you want to walk in relationship with me. Here I'm giving you the clearest revelation. This is what I'm about. This is who I am. And it begins with mercy. The Lord, Yahweh. Self-existent, the Lord, eternally consistent, a God merciful, gracious. Professor of uh, Old Testament and biblical uh, linguistics, Dr. Miles Van Pelt, he says, perhaps you are one of those people like me who grew up thinking about the Old Testament as a book filled with wrath and judgment, doom and gloom, atrocity and injustice. To make matters worse, the New Testament appeared to be the product of the hippie movement of the 1970s, promoting peace, mercy, and brotherly love. Such a dichotomy, however, could not be further from the truth. The Old and New Testament are united in their affirmation that the God of the Bible is a merciful and compassionate God. That word mercy 
uh, conveys the idea of compassion. And so in some of your Bibles, it'll be translated actually compassionate instead of merciful. They're, they're so closely linked together, and it's like the compassion of a mother for her child, even the child's in her womb, that sort of intense love for her child. So if you've ever thought, oh, does God care about me? Like, does he even know that I exist? God is saying, you need to understand my paradigm towards you, who I'm declaring you, to you that I am. I am merciful, meaning I am intensely passionate in my mercy and compassion towards you. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. You might be here this morning going, well, that's good to know. I'm glad God is merciful. That's, that's really good. And thank you, Tim, for pointing that out to me. I'll take that. I'll bank it. Maybe someday if I need mercy, you know, I'll bring this idea that you talked about this morning uh, to the forefront and, and I'll somehow make or take advantage of that. Thank you very much for pointing out to me that God, yeah, that he's a merciful God. Thank you. When I was a kid, I used to watch this cartoon called Mr. Magoo. Uh, some of you that are older might recall him, or maybe they play reruns nowadays, I don't know. But Mr. Magoo was this lovable old guy, but he could hardly see. And so part of the comedy around Mr. Magoo was that, was that he would have a trail of train wrecks behind him, you know, because of things that he'd done, because he can't see. He's causing all kinds of accidents around him, behind him, but he has no idea. He has, he has no idea that he's at fault for anything. He has no idea that he's responsible for, for all kinds of damage. And so he has no idea that he needs mercy. No idea. In the New Testament, Jesus tells this parable in, uh, in Luke chapter 18 about a Pharisee and a tax collector. They're coming into the temple and they're approaching God. And the, the Pharisee looks around himself. He's evaluating worth of people around him. And he's placing himself in a pretty high place in that evaluation. Standing by himself, he prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. I mean, he's doing good things. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, who do you think you went home justified that day? The one who knew that he needed mercy. Don't define your need for mercy by the presence of others. Define your need for mercy by the presence of God. And as you look at stories in Scripture, you see people, when they, when they are given a revelation of God, when some of the barriers are removed and, and they have this encounter with God, immediately it's like they, they, they become aware of their need for mercy. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, after he's pronounced all kinds of woes over nations and people because, you know, they're not following God the way that they should. And he says, woe to you and woe to you. And then Isaiah 6, he has this encounter with God. He has a vision of God. And, you know, the room is filled with smoke. There's these angelic beings and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah says, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. 
I need God's mercy. In the New Testament, we read in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus is beginning to recruit his disciples and uh, Peter's there with some of the others and Jesus gets into one of the boats and he casts off in the boat and he begins to teach the people. And after he's done that, he invites Peter into the boat and he says, uh, I want you to cast down your net. Let's do some fishing. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what went through Peter's mind, but probably something along the line like, Jesus, you're a great teacher, but what do you know about fishing? We fished all night, he said. We haven't caught anything. Nevertheless, because of your word, we're going to let these nets down. And as they do, their nets are full, so much so that as they bring the fish up and put them in the boats, it says the boats were in danger of sinking. And when Peter sees this, he becomes aware of that he is in the presence of someone other. And he cries out, depart from me, Jesus, for I'm a sinner. Isaiah, I need mercy. Peter, I need mercy. We read in Scripture how every person, every one of us in this room, and everybody that's lived past, everybody that's going to live, there'll be a day of, of accountability when every person will be brought before God and will give account for the things which we've thought, said, done. Well, what would that be like if we had to stand before God on our own without mercy I look at my own life and I think of all the messes that I've made along the way. All the ways in which, you know, I've not, I've not been true and consistent like God is consistent towards us. I've not been true and consistent towards Him. Even though I've had, you know, encounters with God and, and special times with Him and all these things. Yet still I find I can wander from Him even in my passion and the, the desire and the priority of my heart. I can still wander from him. James McDonald, who's written a book called, a while back called Vertical Church, and, and writes a lot about um, the glory of God in there. It writes some beautiful things, and yet he himself finds himself in a place where he lost, he lost putting God first and put himself first in some places and caused damage in the church. And then everybody likes to pile on as to how bad a person he is. He needs mercy. I need mercy. You know, we have an, a, a preparation for an election going on. Campaigns are all about. And, and things that people have done five years ago, ten years, fifteen years ago, I mean, it's, it's brought to the forefront, right? One thing. What's it going to be like for us when everything's brought before God? Is God going to pile on? I need mercy. And this is why Jesus came. He came to bring mercy because it's the nature and character of God. As it is in the Father, so it is in the Son. Jesus said, I've come. I've come to give life. And I've come to make the sick well. The only thing is you need to recognize that you are sick. That you need his mercy. Not someday in the future. You need his mercy now. We're desperately in need of the mercy of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, it describes every person outside of a relationship with Jesus. And it's not a pretty picture. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Every person, all of us, apart, apart from Jesus, outside of Jesus, are children of wrath. We are deserving of punishment. And that's why it's so good that Paul, who wrote this, doesn't stop there because the next verse begins this way. But God, being rich in mercy. And it talks about how everything's been turned on its, its head because of the grace and mercy that comes through the person of Jesus Christ. And it's completely undeserved. Mercy, by definition, has compassion. By definition, it, it's, it's that consequences aren't, that are just and due aren't measured out. And it's also, by definition, undeserved. So there's a story that one of the uh, scholars wrote in regards to a professor who was very lenient in his deadlines. And so uh, with his students, uh, he would set a deadline. Papers are due on this date. But students would say to him, hey, I've had a really uh, busy couple of weeks. Do you mind extending? And, oh, yeah, you, okay, that's fine. And so he had a pattern of doing this so that a due date was never a due date. And, and after a while, he was just taken so advantage of that he got fed up one day. And on a, on a due date that he had stated, he said to the students, I would like your papers, please. Well, of course, they all thought, you know, uh, well, no, of course my paper's not done. I mean, you, you know, no. So he starts calling out names. Smith, can I have your paper, please? No, it's not done. F. Johnson, paper, please. No, not done. F. Craig, paper, please. No, not done. F. And you can imagine what happened in the room. There was, a, there was an uproar because it seemed like he wasn't being merciful. But that's actually a misunderstanding of mercy because mercy, by definition, is undeserved. You cannot presume mercy. It's undeserved. So there are two kinds of people when it comes to thinking about mercy. There are those that have no idea that they need it or have stuffed, stuffed down, you know, the voice of, 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 you need God's mercy. Stuffed it down, shoved it away so they don't want to hear it. And then there are those who think, I'm, I'm not worthy of God's mercy. And, and, you, and maybe that's you this morning. You can recall all the, all the bad things you've done. And sometimes they just scream at you and tell you how horrible you are and, and how you'll never measure up and you'll never get it. So why bother? And, and you need to put together a track record of doing things right before you can call out on God for mercy. You need to deserve it somehow. But that's not what mercy is. Mercy is undeserved. So on one hand, we have people who don't realize the magnitude and depth of the mercy they need. On the other hand, we have people who do not realize the depth and the magnitude of the mercy that's available to them in God through Jesus Christ. The Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious. Can you receive his mercy today? Can you receive his grace there was a, a music group, I think they still exist, called the Newsboys. I mean, they've been around forever. They once wrote a song, and it had, it had a really catchy line in it that I think really helps us understand the difference between mercy and grace. It goes like this, and I, I can, I'm hearing it in my mind right now as I'm talking to you, but I'm going to be gracious to you, and I'm not going to sing it, okay? But it goes like this. 
When we don't get what we deserve, and what is that? That's mercy. When we don't get what we deserve, it's a real good thing. It's a real good thing. When we get what we don't deserve, what's that? That's grace. When we get what we don't deserve, that's a real good thing. A real good thing. So let me explain it to you because Jesus, Jesus actually explained it for us when he gave the parable, parable of the prodigal son. Many of you will be familiar with this story. It's, it, it's a story of mercy and grace. So in an honor-shame culture, it's hard for us to understand the, the, the magnitude of what's going on here. As a younger son, the younger of two sons, asks his father for his inheritance. He's completely shaming his father and basically saying, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. The father obliges him, takes his inheritance, goes to a faraway land, and there he squanders it in riotous living. And he comes to the end of himself, and sometimes that's the good turning point. When we come to the end of ourselves and we realize we need mercy. And so he thinks about he, how hungry he is and he's starving. And, and he thinks, you know, even my father's hired hands, at least they have enough food. I'm going to go back to my father thinking, I think he'll be merciful enough to feed me. And treat me as a hired hand. One of his slaves even. That'd be better than what I'm experiencing now. And at the same time, we see how the scripture paints the picture of the father. The father is waiting, wanting for his son to come home. You know, this is, this is so consistent because God is consistent in his nature and character throughout the Old Testament. You know, Israel has, has experienced a discipline because of their wrongdoing. But we see a picture of God that is consistently through his prophets saying, come back to me. Come back to me. We read that in Joel chapter 2. God says, if you'll just turn, if you'll just repent and come back to me, we'll make everything right. Even now, he says, even though there's judgments that, that are coming your way, that can be averted if you just come back. The prodigal son comes back, and even as he's coming back, we get a picture of the father waiting, looking, wanting, who runs to his son, who thinks he doesn't deserve anything, and he doesn't. But his father grants him mercy. He grants him a relationship, but he doesn't stop there. The son thought, oh, you know, I'll be a hired hand. I'll be a servant. The father says no, and he clothes them in a robe. He puts a ring on his finger. He puts shoes on his feet. He kills the fatted calf, and they celebrate. Because the son experiences not only mercy, but he experiences grace. This is the God that we serve. A God who is merciful and gracious. We read in Ephesians chapter 2. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see how the picture changes from wrath to goodness and kindness and grace because of the mercy of God? 
In the previous chapter, in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about how we, who, those, those who have their faith in Jesus Christ, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And then Paul begins to list a number of them, and it's like he can't stop. His pen keeps going and going. You've been adopted. You've been forgiven. I mean, blameless before his presence. He's made known to you his wisdom, his plan. Oh, the riches of God given to you. Do you believe it? You live in that. One of my favorite stories or movies is, uh, we, in English, we call it Les Mis. Uh, in French, it's Les Miserables. And um, <clears throat> there's something about this story that resonates with people. It's been seen, you know, whether it's a musical or movie, it's been seen, I think, by over 70 million people. It's the longest-running musical in uh, London. It's been going for over 30 years. Why is it? Because people want to keep seeing it. Why? Because the, it's not just the music. It's the storyline resonates with our hearts. And it's all about mercy and it's all about grace. In case you're not familiar with the story or you need to be um, brushed up on what happens, uh, Jean Valjean is the main character uh, in the movie I like. He's played by Liam Neeson. And um, he's, a, he's been a, a convict. He's been serving for 19 years, finds himself on parole, is out on the streets, no place to go. Um, somebody points him towards this door uh, where he says they'll probably, they would take you in and feed you. And so he knocks on this door, a bishop opens the door, and the bishop and his wife take Jean Valjean in. It's obvious he hasn't eaten for a while as, he, as they feed him. You know, he has no manners and just begins to down it. And as he's doing so, he notices the, like, this is really good silverware. And so after dinner, and he, he's gone to his quarters where he's going to spend the night, um, he, he gets up early in the middle of the night, takes his bag and puts the silverware in the bag and he leaves as he came, a thief, a criminal. The scene then goes to the next day, and the bishop and his wife are working. They're having a discussion, and all of a sudden, the police show up with Jean Valjean in their custody and the bag. And uh, obviously, just to confirm that this is the, the bishop's goods, and, and uh, Jean Valjean, you know, will be taken away and, and dealt with as a, as a confirmed criminal once again. And the bishop turns to Jean Valjean and he says to him, and this is the turning point of the whole story, I'm disappointed in you. Jean Valjean, I'm disappointed in you. Why did you not take the candlesticks? They are worth a lot of francs. And so he goes, he goes the bishop grabs the candlesticks, throws them in his bag, and the police are dumbfounded because now there's no crime here. So they leave, and then Jean Valjean is left for an intimate conversation with the bishop. But the reality is, is Jean, Jean Valjean has experienced something maybe he's never experienced before. He's experienced mercy, and he's experienced grace. And it's that encounter then that changes and transforms his life. He's no longer what he once was. And why does it resonate with our hearts? Because it's really it's just an extrapolation, right, of the gospel story of what God has done in our lives through Jesus Christ, who came, died for us, rose again, extends mercy to us, and then loads us up with his grace. If that doesn't transform us so that we live differently and we treat other people differently, 
then we haven't seen it. And my prayer for us this morning is that we see God's mercy, we see God's grace, that he reveals it to us, and we are transformed people as a result of it. We worship differently. We relate to God differently. We relate to one another differently. So this morning, as we think about how is this going to impact us, maybe you're here today and you're, you're, you've been running from God and you, you've been hesitant to come back because you don't think you're worthy. Well, you're not. And you don't deserve his mercy and you don't deserve his grace. That's what it's all about. But we serve a God who is merciful and gracious and is waiting with open arms for you just to make the turn and come back. He's probably already speaking to you, working in your heart, drawing you to himself. He's saying, come home. Come home today. Come home. He's not going to pound on you, jump on you, have others jump on you. No, that's, that's sometimes what other people do. God wants to open his arms to you and receive you with mercy and grace and then help you live a different way as you experience that. Maybe you're here today and... Um, You just, don't, you just don't think you're worthy of God's grace. You're not. He wants you to receive it because that's who he is. You can't work your way. You can't make your way to be good enough to earn anything God has for us. You just have to receive by faith. I love Mike's story today, how he, you know, was so real with us about his own life. Just like he had a wrong view of just not asking God because he didn't think, well, more other people are more important. No, God cares about each one of us. He cares about you. What do you need to believe God for? What grace is there? What gift of grace has God got for you? That you, just, you just haven't thought, you know, I'm not worthy of it. But you have an idea. What package needs to be opened? What gift of grace do you need to walk into? It's there for you. And then as we experience God's mercy and grace, we relate to one another differently, don't we? Who in your life do you need to extend mercy to? And that can be like from a relationship that's been hard and broken and you need to extend mercy. But it can also be like extend mercy when you have something and someone else doesn't. Like those that have served at Jackson School, doing the meals in the, in the mornings or helping out reading with some of the children. Like where, where are places where you can extend mercy to other people or grace you can give them something. Maybe, maybe it is money, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a note of encouragement. Who is it that you can be gracious to as we reflect on the mercy and grace, on the glory of God revealed in his name in this way? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, Lord, expressed in your mercy and grace. I pray that the eyes of our heart, Lord, would be enlightened to know it, to know it deeply, to experience it, Lord. May it fuel passion in our hearts towards you, Lord, but also great mercy and grace towards one another. We look forward, God, to what you're going to do in our lives as this happens. In Jesus' name, amen.